0: Praise the Lord. We are here today to lift up the name of our King Jesus together. It is such a privilege and an honor to be among a people whose desire is to honor Jesus and lift high the name of our King. Thank you, Henry, and praise team for leading us in worship that points our hearts to Jesus. Take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Y'all have to listen fast because I'm going to go fast, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're still in the life of David. And you need to put a bookmark here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament as it deals with God's covenant to David. The entire Old Testament, your entire Bible, can be understood, organized, and traced through the idea of covenant. You need to know what covenants are to understand your Bible. Okay? Okay the Bible begins in the creation account with Adam and Eve in the garden in what implies a covenant between God and man where he will be their God and they will be his people I only use the term implies because it doesn't appear in the text but all that is required of a covenant does God promises Adam and Eve that he would bless them and cause them to be fruitful and multiply and rule over All that God had given them. Adam and Eve would be God's people in God's place, the garden, under his rule and blessing. Now in the Bible, God is always the initiator of a covenant. The greater and stronger God binds themselves to the lesser and weaker. To do good to them and to be gracious to them. And the great news of all the Bible is that God does not back out of his covenants. God does not fail to meet his own obligations that he has pledged. They are based solely on his goodness and his graciousness and his own ability to do what he has said. Now, we see some problems happening early in the text in Genesis, right? We see this bear out when Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. They choose to sin and disobey God, rejecting his covenant, God's rule, and God's blessing. And because of this, they're banished. They're cast out of the garden and placed under the curse of sin. It appears that they're no longer God's people in God's place and under His rule and blessing. But even there, even in that moment, God expands His promises and extends more grace. God will not abandon His covenant, though He punishes them for their sin. He promises Adam and Eve that he will send a descendant of Eve who will one day crush the serpent and reestablish God's rule and blessing. A few chapters later in Genesis, sin continues to abound and increase. It appears that all hope is lost, and God decides to destroy the earth with a flood. But God graciously spares Noah and his family, eight people in total, right? God graciously does this, and he does this, because of the covenant he had made the serpent crusher will come so after the flood God takes Noah and makes another covenant with him puts a rainbow in the sky and says I will never again destroy the earth by water God will protect his serpent crushing line and bring about his promises a few chapters later we meet this guy named Abram from the Ur of Chaldeas and God takes this wanderer out of nowhere and makes a covenant with him. God initiates this covenant and binds himself to Abram, though Abram has done nothing deserving of God's blessing. In fact, he fails almost every test. He seems to be a liar and a fraud at almost every turn. But Abram, known as Abraham, after God makes a covenant with him, he believes the promises of God. Galatians says he believes the gospel. And God enters into a covenant relationship with him. God will be his God, and his descendants will be God's people. And God will give him a land. God says, I'll give you every place your foot trods. And I will bless you, and I will multiply you, and kings will come from your line. And through your descendants, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And though Ab- But here's a problem. Abraham and Sarah are like 100 years old. There's no way they can have descendants or heirs. They've been childless their whole life. And God says, It's going to happen so that I will be glorified as God and that you can take no credit. That's the point. Abraham will not be able to take credit for any of the promises that God has made. So now we know that God's people will come from Abraham. The serpent crusher will come from Abraham. Kings will come from Abraham. So now we have God's people, Abraham's people, under God's blessing. But they don't have a land yet. And they're not under God's rule yet. And then God renews his promise with Abraham's son Isaac. And then God renews that promise with Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons and they get jealous. And so what do they do? They take Joseph and they send him into Egypt. Sell him into slavery. But God's plan was to deliver them through Joseph. When the famine comes and ravishes the world. So God places Joseph as second in charge over all of Egypt, and when his brothers come from grain, come for grain so that they can live, he saves them and brings them to Egypt. Though he could have sought vengeance for the way they had treated him, and the reason for all of this comes out at the end of Jacob's life when he's laying on his deathbed and he blesses his sons, which son will receive the covenant promises? Will it be Joseph? Will it be Joseph because he's been the deliverer and the one that God had rescued them? No. It's going to be Judah. Though Judah's a scoundrel and doesn't deserve it. The promises will go to Judah because out of Judah will come the serpent-crushing king promised from the very beginning. The story continues. The plot thickens. After Joseph dies, Israel, Israel spends 400 years as slaves in Egypt before God raises up Moses to deliver them, because God had promised them what? A land. You're not in your land. You're in slavery. I'm going to take you out of this place and lead you on an exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. And it is on this journey that God makes another covenant. God takes Moses up on Mount Sinai and gives him the new covenant as encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, where God reiterates All of the promises that he has made that they will be his people and he will be their God. And they will walk in his commandments and they will love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Though they are stubborn and rebellious. God will bless them and prosper them though they have no reason for God to do it. Next Joshua conquers most of the land before he dies and then judges arise and rule over Israel through periods of rebellion and revival. They are finally, they're God's people in God's place but they aren't really under God's rule or blessing as you see from the way they wander. God's king has yet to arrive to rule over them. And now following following all of that history and all of those promises, we come to 2 Samuel 7 Where God once again comes to establish a covenant with his people. But this time, his covenant will be with his king. From the line of Judah. From the line of Jacob. From the line of Isaac. From the line of Abraham. And this matters because the Davidic covenant, along with all the rest of the covenants, all will be fulfilled by Christ Jesus Who is to come. As you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you read Jesus' genealogy, it tells us clearly there that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the two great covenants made in the Scriptures. Now, that's a lot of history. But that's why 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most important texts in your Old Testament. Mark it, read it, learn it, study it, and learn that this connects all of the great story of the Bible. Now, let's read our text, 2 Samuel 7, Lord's Covenant with David. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? We'll stop there and pick up next week with the rest of that. I have two sections here as we want to work through this quickly. I want you to notice that our text begins with David's assessment and desire. David assesses his situation and he gives us the desire of his heart. Look there in verses 1 and 2. Now, it says that there. This account in verses 1 and 2 is most likely later in David's 40-year reign. He spent seven years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. This is most likely later in his reign, but it's placed here in chapter 7 due to its thematic connection with the ark. In chapter, chapter 6, we saw the ark coming to Jerusalem, and so this is why it's thematically connected there. So David has a house of cedar that has been built from the materials sent to him by King Hiram and Tyre um, that the writer had pointed out in chapter 5. And notice here that the author belabors the point that David is king, right? It says three times that David the king is assess- assessing the situation in verses 1, 2, and 3. So here is the scene as, king- as the king understands it. Put yourself back in Jerusalem. The king is living in a house of luxury, a house of cedar, a house of royalty, and God The Lord of hosts, the King of kings, who sits enthroned above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, is living in a tent. In David's mind, that's not a good look for him, and that's not a good look for the Lord of all creation. I live in a palace, and the Lord is in a tent. And for someone who has spent many a night, cold night, in a tent in the middle of the woods, it's not luxury. That's David's assessment. But David gives a second part of his assessment. David sees in his current situation the promises of God being fulfilled. Look what it says there in the text. It says, The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. David is at peace. David is at rest Now that the Philistines have been subjugated, the Jebusites have been kicked out, and the other uh, previous inhabitants of the land have been put aside as directed by the Lord during the exodus and the conquest, David is experiencing the rest and peace that God had promised his people all the way back with Moses. God told Moses in Exodus 33, on their exodus, God says this, Listen, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's what God promises his people when they come out of slavery. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Joshua picks up on that and he says in Joshua 1, he says, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. David understands here that at this particular time in history, at this moment, God is keeping his promises and blessing his people. Now listen, Israel had experienced temporary peace here and there through the period of the judges, but nothing ever lasted. The people would rebel, God would discipline them, and the same continued during Saul's reigns with the Philistines as they remained a power in the land and there was a struggle and there was no peace, but now... In, in 2 Samuel 7, all of history seems to be moving back towards the Garden of Eden. It seems like we're moving backwards towards the picture of the Garden, right? Now that David is king. Hannah's prayer back in 1 Samuel, this prophecy is coming to pass where, 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 um, where Hannah said, The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So hear me. Pay attention, I'm I'm trying to help you understand why this so much matters. At this point in biblical history, at least temporarily, we have God's people, Israel, in God's place, the promised land, under God's rule and blessing under David. It's a picture of the garden again. All is well among God's people. In light of this, now you can see David's desire. David has assessed the situation and he has a desire. He meets with Nathan the prophet to voice, his, to voice his concern regarding the ark dwelling in a tent. And Nathan replies. Nathan says, hey David, God is with you. Go do all that is in your heart. Now it's important that you note, Nathan doesn't have a specific word from the Lord here. He's not speaking as a prophet He's just giving his opinion on the situation. God's going to give him a direct word in verse 4. Okay, He's simply stating that David's desire is good. And that in his opinion, David should do what his heart desires. And what is David's desire? David desires to build God a house that would reflect God's glory and honor. Just as David's palace reflects David's dignity and royalty as Israel's earthly king. David wants God's house to display God's greater glory to all the world. God has, been the, God, listen, God has been with David since the time he was a shepherd boy, to the time he fought with Goliath, to the time he went through his trials with Saul and the Philistines. God is with him now, and Nathan says, Go do what you want to do. Now, I want you to notice here attention in the text. Do you notice here that there's a surprising word missing in all of this? David desires to build God a house. The word temple seems to be intentionally avoided. You don't see the word temple, do you? He wants to build a house. A house. Now, here's why. David doesn't seem to want to build a temple. At least not a temple like the other pagan kings, have temples for their gods. There's some hesitancy here that the word temple carries a negative tone. Israel isn't supposed to be like the other nations, right? That's why they didn't have a king to begin with. That's why they didn't create uh, carven images of their gods. That's why they don't have a temple. Because they're not supposed to be like the surrounding nations. This is because the God of Israel is nothing like the other gods. The God of Israel isn't like any of the other gods of all the other nations. And here is my application, what this means for us here. Listen, David's desire is not wrong. David's desire is not wrong. David knows how gracious and good God has been to him. He knows that the glory of God is incomprehensibly greater than his glory. There is no comparison. God's glory far surpasses, infinitely surpasses David's. And David feels the weight of this as he walks around Jerusalem in this palace and sees an ark sitting in a tent. David is wrestling with this question that we should all wrestle with. And here it is. Write this question down and wrestle with this this afternoon. Am I properly honoring God? Am I properly honoring God? god that's david's question here me living in a palace god living in a tent is that properly honoring god in other words am i treating god and his presence with the due respect the due reverence and the due glory of his name all of us need to ask ourselves that question seriously that's a serious question ask yourself that Take some time this afternoon and think through it. Am I properly honoring God in the way that I live? In the way that I love? In the way that I act? In the way that I make decisions? David's desire here is good. But what David needs is a sure word from the Lord. And that's what he gets. Look at my second point. Um, We see David's assessment and desire. Now let's look at God's assessment and desire of the situation look back at verses 4 through 7 but that night that same night God doesn't wait that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan go and tell my servant David thus says the Lord would you build me a house to dwell in I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with the people of Israel Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Do you hear God's argument? God is giving his assessment of the situation, including his word and his desire. So let's look at first the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, Nathan receives what David needs to know. Notice that God here steps into this historic moment of his own initiative to give his own definitive word on the situation. He says for Nathan to go to his servant David. Notice God doesn't call David the king. <laughs> David said, God says, you're my servant and you're just like the other rulers that I've given to shepherd my people. You're not here to rule over them, David. You're my servant and you're a shepherd. God always inserts that back in there. He's merely a servant. Then God gives his, thus saith the Lord. So I want to pause here again and point out a, a, a practical lesson for our own lives, okay? Even when our motives are good, even when our motives seem good and right and timely, we can still err. Amen? It can still happen. We can still miss it, we can miss God's timing. All right, It can still happen. As, as sinful fallen creatures, listen, all of us have limitations, and we can fail to discern the Lord's will and the Lord's timing, even with the best of motives. We can have great motives and still miss the Lord's timing. Listen, we often misunderstand those around us. Oh, you don't have that problem? I misunderstand a lot of you. We often misunderstand those around us, even their motives. Like, we'll impugn the motives of those who even have good motives, and we'll question what they're trying to do because we think we know everything. Listen, think about this. If we often misunderstand those around us, how much more can we misunderstand God and His purposes? Especially if we don't ask Him and He doesn't tell us. Okay, so the potential is very high if we don't ask him and he doesn't tell us. Now, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are filled with examples of this. If you've been a student of the Word, think all the way back to the beginning of Samuel, where Eli, the man of God, confronts this crying woman on the side of the road, Hannah. He assumes she's drunk, and so he chastises her and calls her out in front of everybody. And what's she doing? She's weeping and praying that God would give her a son. Or a child. That's all she wants. So the man of God misses and misunderstands what's actually happening. It's right here in the text of Samuel. And so what happens is, um, Hannah actually becomes the mother of Samuel, our author. Or at least the author of 1 Samuel. And so, she's not drunk. That's the point. She, he actually, Samuel, ends up anointing David as king. Or think of Samuel himself. Samuel himself goes to visit Jesse. God wants a new king in Israel. So he goes to visit Jesse. Jesse has eight sons. All right. Say, hey, Jesse, go get your boys and bring them out here. I'm going to anoint somebody king today. And Eliab walks up, the strapping firstborn. And what does Samuel say? Surely I stand before the Lord's anointed. And God says, nope. These are only seven. There's an eighth son. Where is he? What are you talking about, David? He's out among the sheep. He's not going to be king. Samuel says, go get him. And when David walks up, the Lord says, he is the man. Samuel is absolutely wrong. The man of God is absolutely wrong. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. How about that? How about that? Or think of David. I've connected those. Think of David. He gets so mad at Nabal and his folly for not feeding his shepherds that he decides to go and kill him. And, his, and Nabal's wife, Abigail, has to spare him. So think about all that. Three men of God, Eli, Samuel, and David, they can all be wrong. This is why, hear me, this is why the kingdom of God is never safe in the hands of men. Let that sink into your head. This is why the kingdom of God is never safe in the hands of men, no matter how godly they may seem, no matter how pure or good their motives may be. There is only one man that God will entrust his kingdom to. Only one. And his name is Jesus, David's heir, the Christ. So let us all be reminded that, especially those entrusted with some leadership abilities, I'm speaking here to myself as a pastor We all have blind spots. We all have shortcomings. And we need God's wisdom and God's word. We need God's direction even when our motives are good. And listen, I learned this really, I learned this lesson here um, a few years ago, and Henry laughs at me when I had this great big thing planned, and then God sent COVID and was like, nope. You can have the best of motives. It's not going to turn out how you want. And so I've learned, let's sit and wait on Jesus. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Okay? So that's the word, the direct word of the Lord. Now let's look at the humility, contentment and condescension of God. Those are strange words to use with God, aren't they? Let's look at the humility, contentment and condescension of God. Do you see God's answer to David? God recounts history and says, "David, I've never lived anywhere but in a tent. David, I w- I never asked any of the judges to build me anything. David, I don't care." about a house. Do you see God's response? Here it is. In simplest terms, God tells David he has never commanded, God can command, nor has he ever asked for his people to build him a house. Now that's historically important in the life of Israel. Think about them. They wandered as, they were wanderers for 40 years. They were slaves in exile in Egypt. And they, and they now they've, come into the promised land, but they've been wandering. Here it is. God is content to wander with His people as His people wander. God is content. So long as His people have no place, God will wander with them and live in tents with them. And that gives us a window into the very heart of God. God is humble and condescends to live in the same situation as His people. He's content to dwell in a tent. You see, though David's motives are good, God doesn't need a house, huh? Isn't that interesting? This is one of the theological tensions of this text. The other nations build temples for their gods because their gods need their gods need temples. That's what their gods need, huh? The God of Israel, however, think about him. This the God of all creation. The entire cosmos cannot contain him. How much less a little building of bricks and wood. And Solomon, by the way, when he ends up building a temple, will say exactly those words when he, when he actually when he builds the temple in the years ahead. So even Solomon feels that tension. God doesn't really need a temple. Will he really dwell in a house made with human hands? Even the highest heavens cannot contain him. Our God is different. And my point here is that all the other gods of all the nations around Israel are needy. They're poor, and they're weak. They're all made in the very image of the men who built them. God will chide Israel time and again for thinking this. Even after he allows them to build him a house, God chides them that he is not needy. God tells them, I have no need of burnt offerings or sacrifices. I'm not hungry, nor am I needy. God alone, hear me, God alone is the creator of all things. He alone rules the universe. And he is content to dwell in a tent among his people. This is part of God's covenant-keeping promise that I will be your pe- you will be my people and I will be your God. God's desire is to be among his people wherever they are. To bless them and to keep them and to bring them to himself. Now, as I conclude here, and I've done great Whew. Yeah, I can extend this, Henry. All right, I want Amen, I got an amen right here. I want you to think hard with me for just two to three minutes on the condescension of God. Do you not see God's humility and God's condescension here? This is far greater proven when we consider the incarnation of Jesus. Who came and drew near and dwelt among us in humility and condescension. Jesus the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, stepped out of glory. He emptied himself as he took on human flesh and came in the form of a servant. The king of glory stepped onto the dust of this earth and lived among needy, sinful, rebellious people. And he loved us. And he carried our burdens. He carried our sorrows. And he carried our sins. He came to display the very heart of his father. The same heart that we see here in 2 Samuel 7. It's the same heart of condescension. Though Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords, He did not come to demand service or homage. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Instead, He stooped to serve and to give Himself. He came with the gospel message of salvation, offering eternal life to all. Without discrimination, Jesus doesn't look at the rich and those with excess and those people of means and those that are do things in the world. No, Jesus is content to dwell among the poor and the needy. Indiscriminate love and mercy and compassion for all. And Jesus said to all those who were weary and heavy laden to come to Him and find the rest that they so desperately longed for. He said that we could take His yoke Upon him. Because he was gentle. And meek. And lowly. That's who he is. That, we, that he would get in the yoke with us. And we would find rest. Just like God had given David rest. We would find rest in Jesus. In the greatest condescension of Christ was when He willingly laid down His life for our sins so that we could be forgiven to find the rest and peace that we so desperately long for. And even more, even more, think of this, Jesus will come and dwell in us by His Spirit. He will condescend even further and take up residence not in a building, the church isn't a building, but in a people. We are His temple, walking around, filled with His Spirit. God chooses to dwell in His people instead of buildings. Listen here, as I conclude. Our God is not needy. Do you hear that? He is not needy. There is nothing you can give to Him that He Himself did not give to you. He is not needy. And our God is not proud. He stoops to meet us where we are. And my point here, as I conclude, is that Jesus does not need us. God does not need David. No, we need him. And he lovingly and selflessly comes to us. We must simply repent and receive him. We must acknowledge our dependence and renounce our pride. We are the ones who are needy. It is us. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And here's the greatest news of the gospel. Jesus is meek and lowly and comes to the humble. So this morning, if you do not know Jesus, then humble yourself. Humble yourself in your pride and in your sin and say, Jesus, I am the one who is needy. I am the one with sins that needs to be forgiven. I am the one who is an empty vessel that needs to be filled with your spirit. I have nothing to offer you except the sin from which I need to be saved. And this morning, if you're looking for a church home, again, this building is not God's temple. God dwells among his people. And we are a people who are committed to walking with Jesus by his word, under his spirit, until he comes by his grace. We invite you to be a part. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray now that you would speak to our hearts and you would show us Christ in his beauty, in his glory, in his humility, in his condescension, that, Father, we would have a heart like him and, Father, you would make us like him in every way. Father, we pray this all in Christ's good name.